Would you please turn in the good book to Exodus? Chapter 30, verses 17 to 21. The Lord said to Moses, Make a bronze basin with its bronze stand for washing. Place it between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it. Aaron and his sons are to wash their hands and feet with water from it. Whenever they enter the tent of meeting, they shall wash with water so that they will not die. Also, when they approach the altar to minister by presenting an offering made to the Lord by fire, they shall wash their hands and feet so that they will not die. This is to be a lasting ordinance for Aaron and his descendants and for the generations to come. May God bless his word. Amen. Thank you, Judy. As you know, if you've been here the last few Shabbatot, last few weeks, we've been going through a description of the temple, the tabernacle rather, and what was in it, and what it speaks to us, and um, the premise, the underlying principle underneath all that is a simple notion that God has called you and I to be priests. And uh, I'm aware that at this point, the term priest is not exactly warm, fuzzy uh, for our culture for a variety of reasons. Um, But that's the term that scripture uses to describe you and I. Um, we're called to be priests, and we've, and that means a couple of different things. One, uh, we represent God to the people, and we represent the people to God. And if you remember, a few weeks ago, we talk, uh, mentioned the fact that Aaron, the high priest, when he came before the Lord, um, had a couple of um, stones on his shoulder, Onyx stones on which were written the names of the people of Israel, the tribes of Israel, rather. And um, the purpose that was stated for that was that the um, he would bring them before God. Very strange concept when you stop and think and realize that God really doesn't need to be reminded, does he? Since he knows everything. And the point simply was that this was part of uh, Aaron and the priest ministry of intercession of bringing people before God and say Lord do you see these folks they need your touch they need your help which is something that we have been doing uh, particularly this week during the week of prayer and I just want to take a moment and uh, talk about this week of prayer an unusual week of prayer for us because we have found all kinds of distractions. You know how it is sometimes when you have a goal in mind and you point your nose in that direction and it seems like everything, just about everything, just comes in your way and, and threatens to hinder you. Um, I assume that I'm not the only one who has had that experience. Uh, some of them are good experiences, some of them are difficult. But nonetheless, they're very distracting, you know. Uh, Gary's uh, passing 
Gary Dickinson's passing this week um, has been difficult for the last couple of weeks. I mentioned that last Shabbat. Um, emotionally draining, spiritually, physically as well, for us as a mishpacha, as a congregational family. Um, that we've had some major needs in the congregation. We've had some miscommunication with the uh, janitorial staff here. A number of the rooms were locked. And um, when people came to pray, and then getting this article from the IJN was a reminder just what we're facing in our commitment to get Yeshua out to the Jewish community. But you know, the bottom line, folks, is simply the fact that God blesses our obedience. You say amen to that. There are times when the Lord puts something before you and you somehow persevere, you somehow hang in there and you don't see any results. It doesn't seem like um, there have been uh, bells ringing or miracles happening or anything dramatic, even with yourself. And you step back and say, God, uh, we invested all this time. What happened? And the truth is, we don't know what happened visibly as far as the facts on the ground, but God has been at work. And this is a very basic fundamental statement for us that we trust God that he is always at work both to will and to do his good pleasure. Whether we, are, whether we understand it or whether we're clueless. And so <clears throat> despite all the challenges and distractions this week, I stand before you to tell you that my conviction is that God did some decisive things during the time that we spent in prayer. Not because there's anything cute and clever about us, but simply because we see in Scripture over and over again the fact that as God's people pray, God does good stuff. And so we devoted ourselves to prayer this week. And um, I have no doubt that through our commitment to prayer that the kingdom of God advanced, the scripture tells us that the effective prayer of the righteous man or the righteous woman avail much. So at some point we'll be able to look back and say, you know, Something broke, something began to happen during this week of prayer, and now I get it. So that is why our commitment is to function as priests in the sense that we bring the people to God. Not just, Lord, I need this, 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 and furthermore, I need this, but rather learning to intercede for other people, which is very much like Yeshua because that's what he does for us. He intercedes for us. The other part of priesthood, which we haven't talked much about, is our representing God to the community, sometimes despite the fact that the community is not thrilled and ecstatic about us representing 
our Messiah to them, but we do so. And uh, Linda Hecker mentioned last Shabbat our strategy of putting the face in the place, a cute one. Um, we'll have to, to uh, copyright that or put a trademark on it or something. But what we've attempted to do is as we become aware and alerted to events in the Jewish community, we've made a commitment to go and participate and be involved. Not wearing big, gigantic T-shirts that says, Yeshua is for you. <laughs> but just coming and, and making connections and being available and saying, God, I'm going. Uh, believe you want me to go, so what do you have in mind here? Um, and we also mentioned um, the March of Remembrance on April 22nd. We'd like to ask that you put that on your calendar. Um, this is going to be at Babiar Park. And this week, uh, Linda received a very warm um, welcome from the Mizell Museum, which is a, uh, a Jewish museum, saying that they're delighted to, to work with her. Now, they're not fully aware that this evil Messianic Jewish congregation is behind her. But uh, nonetheless, we, we want to be out there. We want to serve and just say, God, what do you have in mind? What do you have in mind? Um, you know, we're not the ones who are coming up with a master plan and strategizing and etc. We, we're just saying, Lord... You told us to go. We want to go. Use us as vessels, as, as tools. And part of the process is recognizing the fact that in order for us to do that, we have to be clean vessels, folks. When you think about it, um, God isn't really thrilled and ecstatic to have to use dirty tools, dirty pipes. And that is, in my mind, the function of the bronze laver, the bronze basin. We can have that. Let's hope so. Okay. Uh, which stood at the tabernacle. And uh, just want to take a moment and talk about it. If we can see it, grand. If we can't, well, you can just imagine. Okay. Um, can, can I have the lights, please? <laughs> ah. Have ears. They're like everything else about the tabernacle, you have a number of different versions. Um, you have the traditionally Christian approach and the traditionally rabbinic approach, a Jewish approach. This tends to be more the Christian uh, approach, if there is uh, a way to describe it. It was simply a, um, a big uh, bronze um, tub, round tub, basically, where the priests would come and, and wash their hands and their feet. Now, 
you might notice, if you, can you all see it back there? You might notice that uh, if you also needed to wash your feet, that might cause a bit of a problem. Uh, it, it might require you to engage in some interesting gymnastics, which is why I'm inclined to go along with the rabbinic uh, version of it. Um, we don't really know the size. Um, the shape everybody assumes was... Um, we have good reason to, to know that th the shape was circular, but uh, rabbinic tradition, which, by the way, comes down through the Mishnah, um, records what was in the temple in the first century. And you may be able to notice what looks like a couple of rings, two on one side and two on the other side. Actually, what these are are spigots. And we don't have the specifications. We don't have the blueprints. But basically, what this was about, uh, this approach, rather, was that you um, took the water not from above, as we saw in the first picture, but rather through the spigots, which would make a lot more sense when you think about the fact that you not only had to wash your hands, you also had to wash your feet. You turn on the spigot somehow, and the water comes for your hands and for your feet. And um, because the rabbis were very particular in describing everything to the nth degree, they also uh, speculated about the fact that uh, the spigot would be placed one, one here, uh, one above, one below, or maybe one um, to the right, one to the left, and that you would wash... Uh, your first of all, your your you would wash with your right hand and right and right foot, and then left hand, left foot, etc., etc. You you know, if you are someone who is obsessed with details, you would love the rabbinic description. Otherwise, you go mishugi. Can have the lights, please. And and uh, do we also have the um, tabernacle? Yeah. Let's hold off on that for a second. It's coming. I have it on on good faith. <laughs> or not. Okay, um, it was positioned uh, just at the entrance to the tent, and you know that the tabernacle was basically tent with a couple of partitions, the holy place and then the most holy place. Uh, the laver was positioned right at the entrance um, to, to the tent, and before that was the altar, the brazen altar. Um, so, th the obvious point was the fact that the labor was very crucial. Why don't we skip that, James, and we'll, we'll just go on. The labor was very crucial um, in how the tabernacle functioned. 
And by the way, in, in, the, um, in the temple itself, everything was on steroids. So you didn't have a small basin, but rather you have a massive, uh, a massive basin that was 15 uh, feet from rim to rim, uh, seven feet uh, high, a circumference of 45 uh, feet, and a capacity of 11,000 gallons. In other words, you, you could probably get um, an entire tribe uh, to bathe themselves in, the, uh, in the laver, which, by the way, was called a sea, yam, uh, in Solomon's day, probably because of its massive size. Thank you, James. Now, inquiring minds want to know, where did the bronze come from? They're in the desert. It's not as if they have all kinds of resources other than what they brought from Egypt. We know in Exodus 38, 8, where the bronze laver, the bronze basin came from. It came from the women who served at the entrance at the tent of the meeting. And, and you think about the implications of, of that uh, for the women who were serving. It was quite a sacrifice, quite a commitment to give something that is, is used in taking care of himself and, and beautifying himself and giving that to God. It was a very, very personal statement. It was part of what we see um, in the tabernacle period that the Spirit of God moved on people and they were stirred to bring a contribution to the construction of the, ta of the tabernacle. What you see in these chapters, chapter uh, 25 through 31 and then 35 and 36, what is amazing, folks, is that people were so stirred that their attitude was, let me see what I can do to contribute to the construction of God's house. In fact, according to a Midrash, a rabbinic legend, the women brought their, um, their mirrors, and Moses was terribly unhappy with that and basically looked at them and said, what, what are you doing here bringing these mirrors? And then he and God had a chat, and the Lord says, Mo." You take that because they're bringing from what they have. So th the labor came from that. Uh, you might also wonder where the water came from. Remember that the Sinai Desert is one of the driest places on earth. Where are you going to have water to keep the labor filled? Again, the rabbis had a theory that a rock or a, uh, a spring followed the nation of Israel wherever they went. Interesting. And by the way, Paul uh, alludes to that. Paul refers to that in 1 Corinthians 10. He states in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 2 to 4, about the nation of Israel being immersed into Moses in a cloud in the sea. They all, drank, they all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. 
for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Messiah. Whatever that looked like, folks, the obvious answer was that God had to provide water in order for them to wash, in order for them to come cleanly into his house. It was a very high priority. You notice that in, in these few verses, death is mentioned a couple of times. You either wash or you die. And you know that, that God is serious because if you've read Leviticus chapter 10, you'll remember what happened with the two sons of Aaron who bebopped into the tabernacle uh, bringing uh, unauthorized fire, and what happened? God sizzled them. And so the Lord is very serious uh, in how He wants those who serve Him to be clean. And that's why, folks, kind of an aside, from time to time when I see people who are in, engaged in ministry being very lackadaisical about what they do and how they do it, it sends shivers down my spine because I know that they have to give an account for God, to God, rather. The same thing we find here with the priests, they had to, to wash themselves on several occasions. First of all, when, just when they came into the holy place um, to, to light the menorah, to trim the menorah, or to change the, the bread from the bread of the presence table, or when the high priest came into the Holy of Holies, on Yom Kippur, or when they were involved in animal sacrifices, either the so-called sin offering or the guilt, so-called guilt offering, they would have to offer the animal, and, and before they even did that, they had to wash their hands and their feet. So you say, why did God want them to do that? You can say, well, it was partially for hygienic reasons because as you work with animals and, and you, you slaughter the animals and, and you, 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 put, you, you, you burn them, you're dealing with all kinds of animal matter that if you don't wash can, get, uh, can uh, bring a, a disease or two or, or ten real quick to you. So some of that is understood for hygienic reasons. However, when you think about it, there were lots of other times when the, when the priests came into the tabernacle not having to, to offer any sacrifices, but, for example, when they came to light the menorah. There was really no hygienic reason why they had to wash their hands and their feet. So I believe that this is very much in keeping with, with what you find in Leviticus, Leviticus chapters 11 to 15, where you have all these chapters dealing with ritual purity. If you have a skin disease, then you have to do this. If you have another, if you have a discharge, you have to do that. And people look at those chapters and they say, well, uh, let's get a pair of scissors and cut these out. Or else they try to come up with all kinds of explanations. 
which maybe work partially. The truth is, you have to step back and say, what is the bigger picture? The bigger picture was the fact that God wanted the nation of Israel, just like he wants us, to be a holy people, to be set apart, to be cleansed, to, to be morally pure. And so he gave all these laws that stipulated from the time the Israelites got up in the morning till they went to bed at night that they were to be separate, they were to be different. You know, just when you got up and got dressed and you said, well, let's see, what should I wear today? Uh, should I wear this, this shirt or this blouse with 50% polyester and 50% and, uh, nylon? If you were an Israelite, you knew the answer right away. Whatever you wore had to be 100%. You could not have any mixture. And if you're a farmer, you went to the field and you were determining, let's see, what am I going to sow in this particular field that I have? Should I put a little barley here, a little wheat here? Um, you knew the answer because God did not want, God did not allow the people of Israel to mix their crops in their fields like that. And then how you did business, etc., etc. Everything was spelled out for the people of Israel so that they would know that they were Am Kadosh, Amen. a holy people. And, and you, know, you may know that the word Kadosh has a couple of meanings. One is having to do with being set apart. As James mentioned earlier today, that the high priest had a gold band that said, Kodesh Ladonai, holiness unto the Lord. And by the way, in Zechariah chapter 14, we're told that when Messiah comes and reigns on the earth, that everything will be holy unto God, even the cooking pots. And even the, um, the horses, uh, the bells of the horses would be holy unto God. In other words, that there will not be any su such a thing as separation between what is holy and what is unholy or profane or common. Everything will belong to God. Amen. And so the nation of Israel was to be a huge, gigantic billboard to the nations around saying, we are set apart not because we, we are to be isolated because we're so special, we're set apart in order to communicate this message and to be a light to the nations. The other aspect of holiness is because we are set apart for God, then we have to live as those who are those who belong to God. In other words, the Lord has a, uh, a tag on us. It says, you're mine. Therefore, you have to live as I do. And since God is absolutely morally pure, holy, 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 three times means that he is absolutely morally pure and holy and hates sin, those who belong to him have to be committed to live lives that are also morally pure. And this had to begin with the priests because they're the ones who set the tone of holiness for the entire nation. Of course, you know that when it didn't happen that way, when the priests were 
as corrupt or worse than a nation, the people slid into a spiritual and a moral abyss. So coming back to, these, to, to the question of why was the command by God to wash the hands and feet so crucial that if they didn't wash, they died. He wanted them to understand very clearly that any time they came to serve him, they had to be conscious, not so much of their sin, but they had to be conscious of what it means to stand in the presence of God. And folks, that to me is what this, this portion is really all about. It isn't so much, you know, the physical act of washing the hands and the feet and, and whether there was uh, two spigots and where the spigot was here or there, etc. Or even the fact that the priests would die if they didn't do it. To me, the big picture here in, in gigantic neon letters is that when they came into God's presence, they had to get the fact that they were in the presence of Almighty God. And the truth is, this is one of these things that is very difficult for us to get our arms around because the God that we worship is typically presented as a teddy bear, as a warm, fuzzy kind of a God. You know, you often hear folks who are believers referring to God as their friend or their buddy. And there is some truth to that. You see, you see that in Scripture sometimes with, with different people. For example, Moses had a, that kind of relationship with God. He would chat with him in Exodus 33. You see the same thing with Abram. But for every time like that, in Scripture, you see that God presents himself in a way that is indescribable. In other words, you just can't get words, enough words to explain what, what God's presence is all about. You see the, the phrase holiness and, and glory used a lot. You see the fact that when you, there are pictures of God physically in a picture you don't really see an old man with a beard but rather you, you see this uh, light shining light and, and diamonds and precious stones and so on that just tell you the, the quick the, the basic notion that God is so precious that being with God is so precious that you and I just don't have the money, in the, that there isn't enough money in the world to pay for that. The presence of God appeared to Israel on a number of occasions. Mount Sinai at the pillar of cloud, pillar of fire. But most of the time, the people of Israel really didn't get, didn't, really didn't get what being with God was all about. It was beyond them. You see a couple of examples of that. Um, 
when, for example, when the priests were dedicated, this is in Leviticus 9, Moses and Aaron went into the tent of the meeting. Leviticus 9.23, when they came out, they blessed the people and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. Fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and fat portions on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted for joy and fell face down. The Hebrew word there for shout for joy can either mean Ranan can be a ringing cry. You know, you just yell out because you don't know what else to say. And they fall flat on their face. How many of us have experienced the presence of God to such an extent that we were so overwhelmed that it blew all our circuits that all we can do was just yell and fall on our face and say, God, this is too much. And yes, there is a balance in the Word of God. There's a balance in the Word of God between between the awesomeness of God and also the immediacy, the fact that God wants to be with us. And we will see a couple of scriptures about that, particularly in Hebrews where we're told to come freely into the presence of God. But, but folks, Hebrews, the book of Hebrews also says, our God is a consuming fire. You have both, both a sense that that God welcomes you, but at the same time that God expects you to get the awesomeness and the majesty, the indescribable majesty of God. And that once you really see it, you realize who He is and who you are. We see a vision of Isaiah. seeing the Lord seated on a throne high and exalted. Again, you really don't see the details, physical details. The train of his robe filled the temple and they were yelling out to one another, Kadosh, 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 holy, holy, holy is the Lord. The whole earth is full with his glory. Folks, you don't see Isaiah sashaying up to God and say, Yo, God, what's happening? Tell me what's going on with you and, you know, I'll tell you what's going on with me. What is Isaiah's response? Woe to me, oily, that's a lament. I'm ruined for I, I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. How do you describe what is indescribable? I just encourage you as you go home and you think about these things, you pray about them, just to ask God to, to talk to you and give you a description that fits for you. Let, let me just attempt with a couple of statements. One is, if you really come into the presence of God, you're not full of yourself. You're not full of yourself. You don't rattle through your agenda. Saying, God, I need for you to do this and this and this. And by the way, once you're done, I need for you to go over here. You sit and you're quiet. 
And you listen. You listen to God speak because you're in awe that God would dwell with you, that God would draw you into his sanctuary. And you also recognize your own stuff. You have to. You have to. You have to recognize, like Isaiah, the fact that God is so infinitely holy and that you have pockets of pollution in you or sometimes you feel like you're sautéed in pollution. You know what I'm saying? But what is encouraging to me is yes, you have this mandate to come before God and, and to recognize the need to be clean but you also have God's infinite mercy. You have both of those. And both of those really give you a sense of, of awe, His holiness and His mercy. You see in Isaiah's vision that one of the seraphim flies with a live coal and touched his mouth. Ouch! You can only imagine if this was in a flesh and blood reality kind of scene what they would do and the angel says to him see this has touched your lips your guilt is taken away and your sin has been atoned for we've been t talking about that and looking at the fact that holiness is both and it's both something we crave and we desire but somehow has to be imparted to us by God as you get who God is and you come into His presence, somehow you get changed, you become transformed. And you recognize just how precious and holy God is. Earlier today, we looked at the verse from, another verse from Isaiah 57. For this is what the high and lofty one says, he who lives forever, whose name is holy, I live in a high and holy place. And we understand that. But also with him who is contrite and lowly in spirit. Coming into God's presence expects that we would come before him with great deal of humility and a willingness to be patient. And folks, this, this is a tough one. This just doesn't work in our society because everything has to be nanoseconds. You know, God, talk to me now. Send me an email now or text me now. You know, the notion of, of being God's presence and waiting an expectation is something that is hard for us to get our arms around. But the Word of God says that as God dwells with us, as He hangs out with us and we hang out with Him, then His desire is to revive us, revive the spirit of the lowly, revive the heart of the contrite. 
This is all part of the process, folks, as we really understand and really embrace who God is and really come into his presence. Then we become transformed. God changes us. God revives us. I can't speak for you. I need to be revived. You know, as I mentioned earlier, this last couple of weeks have been difficult. Because we release Gary to the Lord. We're pleased that he is where he wants to be, that he is having a grand old time. We miss him. We miss him. We miss this old codger. And I've had a bunch of interaction with this family and I've seen their pain. But yet, through that, I recognize one basic fact and that is that God is in the business of reviving and transforming us. He dwells with us and, and the word of God says he dwells with us for the purpose of reviving us. Or his heart's desire is to revive us so that we are empowered and engaged in his work. That is why we bother with the whole notion of, of sin and cleansing because we want to get closer to God. Psalm 24, who may ascend the hill of the Lord who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift his soul to an idol or swear by what is false, he will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God as Savior. Yes, you approach God with reverence, with awe, well recognizing your sin and your junk, recognize your need for cleansing. Recognizing the fact that God has called you and I to serve him in this world and that because of that we need to be clean. Depart, depart, go out from there, touch no unclean thing, come out from it and be pure, you who carry the vessels of the Lord. This is Isaiah 52. God calls us to be clean vessels. But if everything depended on us, we would be utterly depressed because we would be somewhat like Lady Macbeth. You may be familiar with the Macbeth story with her standing in the middle of, of, the, of, of, of the night after having participated in killing everybody and their mother, seeing this imaginary blood stain and trying to clean it and saying, out damn spot. 
And the blessing, folks, is the fact that God is very much engaged in the process. Yes, he shows us our pollution. Yes, he shows us our defilement. But then he's engaged in bringing about the cleansing. Because there are times when you, when you recognize you've tried everything. And there's sin in you that you just can't extract. You can't put yourself on the table and operate and try to cut it out. You have to call, to call God and say, God, would you please come and, and, and do the cleaning? And then wait. Wait for him to, to get the job done. You know, I had a very interesting experience this week. Not particularly spiritual, just practical household stuff. One of our showers was plugged, and um, it was time to try and use my non-plumbing expertise. <laughs> and I tried with the snake, if you're familiar with, with the plumbing tool, trying to get into it and trying to clean it. Well, that didn't work. And then I got a uh, liquid plumber. Try that. That didn't work. Then I recognized, okay, uh, we need a professional. And he came and did the cleaning. And that, for me, was such a huge picture of what God does. You know, our pipes are clogged with a defilement of the world, with our own defilement. And yes, there are parts that we participate in the, in the cleansing process, but at some point, what keeps us sane is the basic knowledge that the one who goes clear to the bone, the one who cleanses us, is God. And He knows us, He loves us, and we just say, Lord, would you please come and cleanse me? I want to be a clean vessel. I want to serve you as your representative in this world. Let's pray. Lord, we stand in awe of you. We are amazed, Lord God, that you would welcome us into your presence. We thank you, Lord God, for how you come and, and uh, you demonstrate you, your glory and your awesomeness to us, Lord. Words fail us. So I pray, Lord God, for each one of us that the conviction and the reality of just who you are would go deep with us. And Lord, that we would be eager to see that cleansing work in us, Lord God, and to participate in it, knowing that you know us intimately, and yet you love us.
So I pray for each one of us, Lord God, that, that we would walk away today having glimpsed, Lord God, not just who you are, but your demand for holiness. And that we would turn our hearts and, and point our noses in that direction and say, Lord, we want to be holy as you are holy. We welcome your cleansing and refining work in our life so that we can be more useful, more fruitful in your kingdom. Pray, Lord God, for that deep conviction for each one of us. In Yeshua's name. Amen.